BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. A warning in the woods. I'm Jason Horton. I'm Rebecca Lieb. And this is Ghost Town. On June 12, 1977, four middle school friends began their first night at Camp Scott, a Girl Scout camp in Mays County, Oklahoma, choosing their tent they'd sleep in for the week. Three of the girls, Denise Milner, Lori Farmer, and Michelle Heather Goose, decided on tent number eight. The fourth friend, Joanna Wright, decided she'd stay elsewhere. I just didn't like the location, she said. There were a lot of woods around it. I just didn't like it. Less than 24 hours later, Denise, Lori, and Michelle would be found outside of Cabin 8, murdered. This is the strange and horrifying story to the still-unsolved Oklahoma Girl Scout murders. And I want to just warn everyone, too, this gets a little bit graphic. This is something that happened to some very young children. So if that's something that maybe you can't handle right now, just skip past it. Before we get into June 12th, let's go back less than two months to April 1977. Camp Scott was getting prepped for campers, and the counselors were there for a weekend, receiving on-site counselor training. More and more items were mysteriously going missing from the camp. After one counselor training session, a man went back to their cabin where they found their sleeping area completely ransacked. In the debris and mess was a fake body hanged in a makeshift noose and an empty donut box. Inside the box was a handwritten note that warned, quote, We are on a mission to kill three girls in tent one. The note was discarded because it also said something about Martians. It's a long note that I didn't personally see, but everyone thought it was just a weird prank. The information wasn't disclosed to parents of the children who would be arriving at the camp shortly thereafter. So on Sunday, June 12th, 1977, the night before camp officially started, it was in the 90s. Humid. The air was heavy. A thunderstorm was about to hit the area, and all of the girls, new to camp, were choosing tents. The layout of Camp Scott was that so the tents were divided into these different areas, each named after a native nation. This will be important later in this story. Among the campers trying to figure out where they'd bunk for the week were 8-year-old Lori Lee Farmer, 10-year-old Doris Denise Milner, and 9-year-old Michelle Heather Goose. And I apologize, too, if I'm saying her name wrong. It is G-U-S-E. The girls all lived in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, a suburb of Tulsa, but had become fast friends that afternoon. They decided to share Tent 8 in the camp's Kiowa, again, I'm sorry if I'm saying that wrong, K-I-O-W-A, unit, which was located the farthest from the camp counselor's sleeping area. The tents were heavily wooded and partially obscured by the camp showers. Said an FBI agent who would later case the area, quote, those hills were so dark. The canopy of trees were so thick, and at night you couldn't see where the trees ended and the sky began. So this terrible night even starts like a horror movie, though no one would know what was about to happen. The storm broke around 6 p.m. that night, and Lori, Doris, and Michelle, along with Joanna and some other friends, were eating dinner in the mess hall tent. It wasn't so bad by Oklahoma standards, but there was thunder and lightning and the downpour that kept the campers in the tents until around 7.30 p.m. After the rain subsided, all the girls headed to their sleeping tents. 
They were probably pretty excited. They had a full slate of camp activities the next day. It was their first night. Maybe adrenaline was running high. The girls liked to play cards, gossip, and generally get to know each other. A tradition of Camp Scott was that each camper would write a letter right before bed saying how their first day went. The letter the camper would write would be sent to their family the next day. The letters of Michelle, Lori, and Denise are painful clues to the girls' mindset at that moment in time. Denise Milner didn't even want to go to the camp in the first place and almost backed out after some of her friends decided to go elsewhere. Her letter has a kind of negative tone, talking about the rain and saying how she maybe wanted to come home. Lori Farmer's letter was positive, talking about her new friends, Denise and Michelle, and how she was excited about the camp experience. Michelle's letter is simple and sparse, saying she was with Lori and Michelle, and that the inside of the tent was a pretty shade of purple. Michelle's father, Richard, thought that Michelle may have had a kind of psychic moment before she left. He said that she was excited about camp, but really upset about leaving her family, not something that was normal for her and gave each of her family members a uncharacteristically long and somewhat morose hug before she departed. She also told her mom to water her favorite possessions when she was gone, two African violets. We don't know what happened from dinner until 1.30 a.m., but around 1.30 a.m. the next morning, a counselor, Carla Wilhite, checked the area around tent 8 because she heard moans from the woods. She cased the area with a flashlight, found nothing, and the moans subsided. But then as she went back to her cabin, the moans started up again. As she shone the flashlight into the woods, the moans stopped again. Carla told herself that all of this moaning on and off was an animal, and that she shouldn't disturb anyone, and that she should go back to bed. Later, campers from four other areas would report hearing moaning around the same time. A half hour later, around 2 a.m., a camper who was staying in tent number seven, the same Kiowa unit, reported her tent being opened and a flashlight shone inside. Her friends, who were sleeping next to her, did not wake up. The tent was then zipped back up, and she heard footsteps moving away. She didn't know what to do, and her friends were asleep, so she herself went back to sleep. At approximately 3 a.m., a camper from the Cherokee section of the camp heard a scream. She sprung up in her cot and shook awake her tentmate. Both realized that the scream came from the Kiowa area, about two city blocks away. It was late, and they just didn't know what to do. They were children, so they did nothing and tried to go back to sleep. A girl in the Quapa unit also heard screaming and the sound of someone saying, Mama, Mama. And also, again, like a child might, especially someone without direction, didn't do anything and decided to go back to sleep. A few other campers nearby experienced the exact same thing. During the trial, the camp representative made a statement that, quote, girls often hear things and scream and giggle during their first night of encampment. Maybe, maybe not. We'll find out after this break. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, hello, how are you? Hello. How are you doing? You okay? You look you good? good. You look great. Yeah. Looking young. Have you young. been doing anything? What have you been doing? Just Existing? natural? Just genetic? <laughs> yeah. It's got to be genetic. Now we're, we're mad at you. Anything. Now we're mad. <laughs> Why do you look so good? Answer me. Answer me. We're bitter. <laughs> we want to say hello to anyone who's listening, anyone who supports the podcast, and of course, our patrons. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. And to our almighty government. Gotta thank the government. 
Regatta. Every day, we pledge allegiance to the ghost town government. GTG. The mayors. In non-alphabetical order. Good. Thank you. Ashley Matson. Hello. Dara Rosenzweig. Hello. James Harrington. Hello. David Bull. Hello. And the governor. Almighty. All-knowing. Avian Avian Noble. If you want early access, bonus episodes, none of this chit chat, it's patreon.com slash ghost town pod. Mm-hmm. I got one whopper of an Apple podcast Ooh. review. It's a whopper. Ooh. It's a size XXL whopper. I'm hungry for it. And thank you to anyone who's left an Apple podcast review or, or reviewed us anywhere. It really mm-hmm. helps. And if you haven't, think about it. Yeah, try it. It's not much of your time. It worked for CJ Jossell. <laughs> in the U.S. and day. Hmm. This podcast makes me happy on the reg. Five stars. Whoa. I'm in the midst of a major binge session on the podcast, and every episode really delivers the goods. The banter between Jason and Rebecca is hilarious, and their personalities are so down to earth, you feel like you know them. I've listened to many true crime, paranormal, etc. podcasts, but Ghost Town is my favorite, and here's why. <gasps> so listen up, folks. Okay, okay. While explaining the backstory of a true crime, they don't revel in the awful the way far too many podcasts do, which would leave me feeling gross. Instead, they explain the details and they convey the appropriate emotion about the backstory. They keep it human, and I appreciate that. I love the weird history stories like the Deadly Molasses Flood of 1919. Oh, shit. A Rebecca classic. That's a weird one. Absolutely fascinating. And I live for the fact that Jason and Rebecca bring back all the pop culture fads of the past, like the Cola Wars, Wendy's Superbar, and old amusement parks. Finally, I'm a new patron to the Ghost Town Patreon. <gasps> Thank you. Thank Thank you. 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 And even though I don't have to listen to the chit chat, (laughs) I choose to. Chit chat is part of what keeps me coming back. In fact, this patron thinks Rebecca's dating stories should be special content on Patreon. Keep making the good stuff. The good stuff. I like that we're called down to earth because I'm usually just called gorgeous. I need both, you know? Yeah. I people call like I'm like just for awards away from an EGOT. Like, <laughs> that's right. And I'm right on the precipice of all four of them at the same time. Wow, that's good. That's good. But other than that. I'm a perfect 10, so I'm glad my personality also shines. I'm perfect 311. <laughs> so, perfect. Yeah, I'm down to ta- earth. There's a tattoo for you. We have a comment from a friend of the podcast, Christopher Garcia. He has been commenting a lot because he's had some interesting relationships with some of the things that we've covered. So he messaged me and he said, First off, stop spying on my hard drive. Won't do that, Chris. Won't do that. He said, I knew Teresa Duncan and worked with my museum to document her games from about 2001 through 2004. That normally would have been a six-month project, but she was dot 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 difficult. Apparently met Jeremy a few times, though I only remember one time when he was screening his film Winchester. I actually wrote about Winchester in Maisie about the Winchester house, white and clasped, and the article opened with the line, quote, before they were murdered by Scientology. So he has known them for years, trying to write about them, can't find the right angle. But he says, quote, but yeah, they were killed by Scientology and the whole Beck thing was way messier. This is something we discussed when we were talking about the episode. The episode, it was uh, the last week's episode, That's The Golden right. Suicides. The Golden Suicides. Go back and check it out. It's a really fascinating story. And it's so great to hear people who have interacted because we came to the conclusion that it probably wasn't Scientology. It was something else. And maybe, you know, the qualms that we have about Scientology maybe didn't factor into the story. But Chris is saying differently. 
that Scientology may have been a factor. We would love to hear what you think about it, because it's getting richer and richer. Whether it's Scientology or not, in a way it is, because if it's in the, if they believe that it is, that, and it led them down whatever road they went down, you know, I guess it was true for them, regardless if it was actually Scientology, not somewhere in the middle. Yeah. If you think it's something and it leads you down that road, then it is that to you, whether, totally. whether someone else was actually involved or not. Guess remains to be seen. Ugh, I want to read a book. I, it's the first time I heard about it when you were introducing me and the listeners to it. So I, yeah, I'm very, very curious if anyone recommends any good books on it. I am very down. But let's get back to Oklahoma, where something very terrifying is about to occur. At 6 a.m. on June 13th, Carla, the same counselor who investigated that moaning, was on her way to the showers to get ready for the day. So again, we're talking about the showers, the far tents, tent eight, tent seven, and then kind of where everyone else exists in the camp. In the same spot that she heard the moans, Carla noticed three sleeping bags under a tree. She thought it was strange and went over to investigate. There, her eyes focused on one sleeping bag, where peeking out was the body of Denise Milner, who was partially, again, out of her sleeping bag and naked from the waist down. Her hands were tied with duct tape and there was a cord around her neck. She was badly bruised. As the other staff ran to Carla's aid, Carla did not dare open the other sleeping bags. When authorities arrived, they found Lori and Michelle in the other bags, tied in the fetal position and covered in bloody sheets. Subsequent testing showed that all three girls had been raped, bludgeoned, and strangled. But Denise was left differently, and investigators realized that, while her friends were killed with blunt force trauma to their heads inside of the tent— Denise had likely gone with the killer outside, as there were large and small footsteps on the trail. A red flashlight was found on top of the sleeping bags, and a fingerprint was found on the lens of the flashlight that has to this day never been identified. Camp Scott was immediately evacuated and was later completely shut down. The question was, who would do such a terrible and random thing? While counselors were immediate suspects, as was the camp director, authorities also went to neighboring residences. About a mile away from Camp Scott was the home of a Cherokee medicine man. While the resident had an alibi, he alluded to another person who lived with him on and off, 33-year-old Jean Leroy Hart, who had been at large since 1973 after escaping from the Mays County Jail. As the police looked into Hart, they realized that he was a dangerous man. He had been convicted of kidnapping and raping two pregnant women, as well as four counts of first-degree burglary. Hart was arrested within a year as the authorities monitored the home, and DNA testing of the bloody sheets showed a loose match with his DNA. Although, to be fair, according to research by the Oklahoman, DNA from 1 in 7,000 Native Americans would obtain these results. Hart was a Native American man. In March 1979, Hart was arrested and went to trial. Although the local sheriff pronounced himself 1,000% certain that Hart was guilty, a local jury acquitted him. This could be due to many factors, but the biggest two were that the DNA evidence was fairly weak, and that as a convicted rapist and jail escapee, he still had 305 years of his 308-year sentence left to serve in the Oklahoma State Penitentiary. So he'd have to do that time anyway. Hart goes to prison, and Camp Scott is no more. Still, justice for the girls felt hollow after the acquittal, and on June 4th, 1979, 35-year-old Hart collapses after an hour of lifting weights in the prison exercise yard, dying quickly of a heart attack. The families of Michelle and Lori later sued the Magic Empire Council, the Girl Scout camp's owners and insurers, for $5 million, alleging negligence. The civil trial included a discussion of the threatening note and the fact that tent number eight was 86 yards from the counselor's tent. 
1985, by a 9-3 to vote, jurors decided in favor of Magic Empire. In 2008, authorities conducted new DNA testing on stains found on a pillowcase, the results of which were again inconclusive because the samples were, quote, too deteriorated to obtain a DNA profile. In 2017, $30,000 in donations were raised by the sheriff in order to do new DNA tests using the latest advances in testing. I couldn't find what happened to that, but hopefully some closure was found or maybe it never happened and they're waiting on doing tests. I'm not sure. As heartbreaking as this whole case was, some good did come of it. Michelle's father, Richard Goose, went on to help the state legislature pass the Oklahoma Victims' Bill of Rights. He also helped found the Oklahoma Crime Victims' Compensation Board. Lori's mom, Sherry Farmer, founded the Oklahoma chapter of Parents of Murdered Children, a support group for parents whose children were killed. Technically, even though it feels like it points to heart, this case still remains unsolved. Are they alleging or maybe insinuating that the fact that one of them seem to have left with the person that they might have known who they were? There's a little bit of talk around that. So I could say yes, but at the same time, like the struggle and the bruises, I think say no. So that kind of is an open question mark. But of course, there are a lot of theories being thrown around about what happened and who this could have been. I think going to the counselors who were, you know, adults at the time and and people who were managing the camp seemed like a natural state of things. But there were also a lot of people who lived as rural as it was in Oklahoma, a lot of people who lived around the area too, and a lot of transient people. So I think that was kind of overwhelming for the detectives who were trying to solve this case. But again, it feels to me like Hart is the obvious person who did this. We never get a statement from him. We don't get a lot of closure around that, which leaves it open. It almost seems like his roommate was saying without saying that you might want to check out my roommate. He's Mm -hmm. on again and off again. I'm not saying he did anything or didn't, but you might want to check him out Mm -hmm. because he has a history, but maybe, maybe he knew that something was remiss. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's the point that really pivotal point in a lot of the discussion too, is when whoever, presumably whoever did this open tent number seven looked in and and somehow decided not to engage with the campers inside, but they did engage with the campers in camp number eight and what that means really, which again, not a ton of closure around it. There's also a whole level with Hart being uh, a Native American and a lot of politics involved in that, which I didn't want to get into too much because it doesn't really kind of help the story. And there's really talk about less closure to something. There's not a ton of closure around the politics to that. And it doesn't really contribute to the justice served, I would say. But terrifying. I can't imagine sending a kid to camp and this happening to them. (laughs) 